Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And today we'll be reviewing Amat Escalante's Mexican psychosexual drama, The Untamed, opening the Cultural Capital film diary, and sharing our top three Californian romantic comedies. We're kicking off the episode with a review of the film that inspired that list, Hayley Myers Shire's Home Again. I'm Alice. Hey, Alice. 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 Alice, please stop avoiding me. Alice, look at me for a second. Alice is nearly separated. Loser. She's so intense. No, I'm not. You have and I've got this thing about you, and it's super impressive. You seem to be handling everything really well. Alice doesn't know what she wants. Brutal. You gotta check yourself. Everything's gonna be okay. When were you going to tell me that three strangers were living in your house? I just always act out on my birthday. It's like my own birthday on New Year's Eve, so I just go like, what? And I just reel it back to normal. Hayley Myers Shire, daughter of the wildly successful filmmaker Nancy Myers, makes her directorial debut with the romantic comedy Home Again. Reese Witherspoon stars as Alice Kinney, the daughter of a famous filmmaker who splits up with her New York-based husband, Austin, played by Michael Sheen, and moves back to the Los Angeles home she grew up in. While on an uncharacteristically wild night out for her birthday, Alice meets three incredibly handsome 20-something guys, including the swoon-worthy Harry, played by Pico Alexander. Harry has moved to LA with his buddies George and Teddy to make it in the movies, and very quickly they all end up living at Alice's house. Alice and Harry embark on a relationship of sorts, but then Michael Sheen's Austin shows up again, and passive-aggressive hijinks between all the men ensue. Through all the drama, Alice juggles the four men, her two young daughters, and a demanding interior design client. Eloise, would you go home again? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't think it's any surprise to say that I absolutely love this film. I love Reese Witherspoon so much and I love rom-coms and I love California and I cried four times during this film. Really? Four times? Wow. Yeah. Uh, One was early on and then I cried some more as the film reached its conclusion anyway I just thought it was really really good and it in fact got a lot stronger when the film started it kind of has that montage and she's talking about growing up with her filmmaker father in photos and then she kind of says these little things about life that life is all sorts of things and helps her or these films helped her see one particular line that I wrote down was (laughs) the humor in it all which I just thought was a little bit daggy and not so great but basically I really really didn't like the beginning um, and I thought it got much stronger from there. Uh, It had this reflection on her history and how her father possibly could have ruined her uh, emotionally or whatever, but that wasn't really the case. And then she just turned out to be this well-rounded person, I thought, who was really pleasant and nice um, and got along really well with everyone and made it a really nice movie. Anyway, I loved it. <laughs> but, Andy, what about you? Um, yeah, I was really on board. I feel like this and a lot of romantic comedies get undersold um, in the way that they're kind of put out there in the market. So in this case, we've got a red poster of Reese Witherspoon with, under the words Home Again with some weirdly Photoshopped legs. Um, but it's a lot more than that. There's a lot more going on here. I think it's really interesting looking at the way that romantic comedies have changed quite a lot. In the, they used to be like a lock and key woman looking for a man, he solves all of her problems. But the problems in 2017 are extremely different. So in this case we get, and like a lot of romantic comedies started doing in the 90s, they 
how complicated life is and that they can't just be solved by one person turning up. And so in this case, we get, you know, these three men turning up there, you know, like it's, it reminded me a bit of the beginning of Mulholland Drive where you kind of arrive in this, you've got this ladder to success that you're just going one rung at a time. And, and I think Hollywood, a, right? Well, yeah, is it? I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, um, yeah, and so it is. It is kind of interesting in the in the way that uh, she does still have a lot of problems to deal with. But she, like a lot of Nancy Myers films, she begins at a level where she has a lot of resources already. She has a beautiful, sprawling Spanish colonial mansion, which trivia facts uh, was previously owned by Cindy Crawford, then Jennifer Garner and Ben Affleck. Oh, great. Just did a bit That's of a research. Nice yeah, it is, isn't it? It's a gorgeous house. It's a beautiful house. house. For a Myers, uh, well, she produced some of it. For a Myers adjacent film, anyway, I've <laughs> come to expect these kinds of houses. Yeah, and, and, it, and, it, disappoint. and it played a much bigger role because it's almost like, you know, this was done with this meta knowledge that everybody's going to be looking at the how, how this place, this house looks and how it's furnished. And it becomes this point, you know, where people will walk in and go, oh my God, how beautiful. This is great. And then, you know, in later scenes, people are taking bunches of flowers to other houses because, you know, after we visited that house, we, you know, we realized how beautiful it can, you know, Know, things can be so anyway to get back to it so she has these three guys they turn up they kind of fulfill each of these needs as you know one of her friends says at one point so you've got a guy giving you free tech service and then you're getting sex and you're getting you know a, a friend to talk to yeah okay so yeah it is this kind of beautiful fairy tale and i was really taken along with it but i also really enjoyed the way that it didn't just stop at romance and comedy it kind of looked at a lot more serious mm-hmm. stuff even if a lot of the drama amongst those three guys was badly manufactured and a bit clumsy i thought my friend uh, Manuel Betancourt on Twitter, because I tweeted about how much I love the film. Anyway, so he he called it a mum com. Oh yeah, um, which I yeah. think is great. Like it's perfect <laughs> because like it's about being a mum and some mum issues, I guess. Yeah, um, anyway. that works. It's very mum core. Yeah, but I also don't. I, yeah. I want more people to see it. I don't want just mums to see it. Like oh. I think a lot of people can get a lot of out of it. I'm, I was really surprised how good it was. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that like just mums should see it. Obviously, none of us are mums, so True. I anyway. I don't think I liked it as much as you guys did. Although I didn't dislike it. I'm here for any kind of movie that says that life is difficult and messy. And the great thing about this is that she, yeah, her journey is that kind of. It's not like this dawning, you know, massive moment of self actualization where she completely changes her life around 360 degrees for the better. She just sort of muddles through this experience and at the end of it, it's made her a better person, which I thought was a very nice, somewhat more subdued dramatic stakes than what oftentimes manufactured in a film like this. A shout out to Candice Bergen as her yes. mother. She was great. In playing, basically playing herself, scenes. I think. Yeah, well, yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, playing this famous actor. But it was very, very wish fulfilmenty just getting into that idea of the Hollywood thing. I mean, you're exactly right, Andy. They, these three sort of broke, apparently broke, although they all they dress very well, um, <laughs> young artistic types, you know, arrive in Hollywood and then a week later they're living with this storied filmmaking family. All the Hollywood drama stuff I could have uh, sort of, you know, yeah, whatever. But the Reese Witherspoon stuff in particular is great. I thought she's a great, I mean, what a year she's had. She's a great actor and she completely carries this movie. I think, I don't think any of those three men are particularly charismatic. Mm. No offense. Yeah. Pico Alexander was fine. I liked the gap between his teeth, but yeah, and a very beautiful jawline. Quite beautiful, yeah. but, but less beautiful as he was in the movie more, I have to say. <laughs> um, maybe he had a little bit of that just like, um, 
you know, impressive factor first up. I have to say he reminded me a lot of, and I had to look up his name because I couldn't remember his name. He reminded me so much of Andrew Keegan, the jock star of 10 Things I Had About You. Oh, yeah, oh. Um, <laughs> And also Party of Five. Anyway, I thought, you know, like that's solid rom-com meat to kind of have a guy who looks like that. But they were just yeah. like, it was almost uncanny the way that they looked the same. I appreciated this film because I thought what it was doing in terms of, portraying this 40-year-old woman um, who is successful in, like, many parts of her life but struggling in an emotional sort of level. I really loved the way that it showed her emotional growth. The film is kind of set up as this film about an older woman sleeping with a younger man but that only takes up, you know, a short Mm. portion Mm. of the film and then it becomes something else. So while I thought that maybe that wasn't, like, terribly well scripted I did really like thinking about it from the emotional explanation that Alice Reese Witherspoon's character gives so she says that she doesn't want to be uh, someone who's left waiting at night at a nice respectable dinner because a 27 year old has um, an unpredictable life and who is sometimes a little bit reckless and that she just wanted some stability. And I really liked that honesty that came from her and I think the way that she framed that decision and about how she was, like, not using these men that came into her life to give her some confidence but that they had, in fact, just given her confidence and allowed her to realise that she could dictate her own life and she could then tell her mother what she wanted and she could tell her um, soon-to-be ex-husband what she wanted, that she wanted her own life. And I really thought that that was very genuine. And, I mean, when we think about, you know, a rom-com, we don't really think about genuity, I guess. Mm. Um, And in this whole, you know, like wish fulfilment, dream, coming to Hollywood, like that's all a little bit um, fantasy-like but um, this this emotional kind of – Tension, I thought, was was very nice, very well done. Yeah, I agree. And that's, yeah, that that was the most interesting thing about this movie, I think, is exactly that point that her big change, yeah, was this sort of inner change to making peace with uh, this new version of who she became. And it didn't mean that she was, you know, giving up on her life and moving after the man of her dream, running after the man of her dreams or anything like that, the way that it's so often is framed. Yeah. And that was what made it really interesting, I think. Yeah, and I really liked how it threw back to some of the better romantic comedies I thought from the 90s, particularly The Object of My Affection, a totally underseen Jennifer Aniston movie that I highly recommend to anybody, in that it presents this alternative version of family in a way because usually, you know, there used to be you're looking for a man and then you have a family or whatever. You know, this was the premise of quite a few older romantic comedies and screwballs and that sort of thing for various reasons. But now we get this idea that this family can be all sorts of different things. So it's like a subtle introduction of, you know, in 2017, maybe it's not so revolutionary, but it certainly still feels like the way that you can get what you need from a range of different people rather than one knight in shining armour sort of thing. Particularly yeah. given that she's a mum. And I thought the scenes with the kids were really, really great. Yeah, she had a really good relationship with both of her children, I thought. Mm. Um, I think yeah. we just need to give a shout-out to Lake Bell. Totally. Who gave such oh, yes. an um, yes. like on-the-ball performance as this highly strung diva mother, like far too rich for her own good yeah. um, and demanding. And that scene where Reese Witherspoon tells her off in a restaurant was great, I thought. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of that article that came out a couple of years ago from that personal assistant who was exposing the horrors of life being a PA <laughs> with, to somebody that I think 
was allegedly January Jones, but I can't confirm. But basically, it, yeah, it was. I think some scenes were taken straight from that article. Right, right. But I love that it was Lake Bell of all people, like one I know, of the nicest, like the nicest indie, sh- indie queens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. People of all, totally. Yeah. Um, also, I mean, I just really love this reversed the gender standards of this whole coming to Hollywood seeking success story where in a lot of old stories it was the young starlet coming seeking fame and that she then needed to get something from an older man whether he be in the film business or not I mean it just turns out that obviously Alice is in the film business somehow or her life is in the film business anyway so that's where it comes but that that was really great I thought that um you know that's really wonderful to see a film doing something like that absolutely yeah you're right Candace Bergen's character when she first meets these three young men and they're like, oh, we're trying to be filmmakers. And she goes, oh, you know, you're in LA, everyone's trying to be a filmmaker. But it was really nice how it was not as transactional as other films might uh, and as, in fact, the reality often is, as we I agree. And I like it because at first Candice Bergen comes in and she's like, what are you doing? My daughter has been out all night with these three boys. Has she been having an orgy? The children are around. And then the three boys start – I call them boys. It's ridiculous. (laughs) The three men in their 20s, um, you know, start to butter up Candice Bergen and they're like, oh, you're an actress. You're famous. We love you. You're still so beautiful. And it's almost – as though you know they're obviously feeding her ego and it's very very obvious that that Candace Bergen is acting in a way that is yes she's taking this on and she's allowing herself to be sucked in by them but I really love it because then it pivots away from it and we see that Candace Bergen the character she her character is actually really wonderful and really understanding and really loving of both her daughter and these these men who who are so good to her family. And so it's, yeah, you're right, it's not just that transactional thing. And it was a really cute, it's incredibly cheesy, but also a very cute moment where in the backyard when they watch one of her, like, late husband's films, like, projected on, like, a black, white sheet and it was just, it was very, it was nice. It was a nice movie. It was nice. Yeah. Yeah. Also, they, I mean, just more of this, like, you know, being embedded so intensely, although how could you not be in LA um, in the history of Hollywood? I think uh, at one point someone's trying to describe Teddy, who's the actor, um, and says that he's got Clark Gable's good looks. And I'm like, mm, not really. <laughs> yeah, no. uh, but then at the end they move into, did you notice, they move into their apartment buildings called the Gable. The Gable. Oh, I did notice that. Yeah, yeah. No, but I did, I did th- think that the uh, the glimpses we see of this amazing short film that they've made that's getting them all this attention in Hollywood was hilariously lo-fi. Did we see any We, we, got, yeah, we, we got some black and white oh, yeah, footage of this. And the pocket watch that like yes. falls from there. <laughs> I loved that, you guys. I thought it was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was funny. But I also loved how you could have just substituted the made-up film for Candace Bergen looking amazing and carnal knowledge or something like that because yeah. basically that was her playing herself. You know, yeah, that's yeah, true. It worked. <laughs> cool. That's Home Again and we liked it mostly. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> hey, Alice. Yeah. Do you have a minute? Sure. Could we just maybe exchange phone numbers or... Oh, Harry, I'm, I'm very late. Listen, I think you woke up to a completely different person than you met last night and I appreciate the gesture. I really do. But how old are you? Like 30? 29? Something like that. Oh, Jesus. Okay, girls, come on, time to get in the car. Okay, okay. She's so intense. No, I'm not. Good luck with everything. Maybe I'll see you around. Hope so. Come on, ladies. 
Did you guys have a sleepover? What? How did you meet? Yeah, are you friends with their mom? Friends with their mom? How old do I look? I don't know. Mom age? Set in Mexico, Amat Escalante's slow-burning film The Untamed, which translates roughly in Spanish as The Wild Region, is a both domestic and supernatural horror story that opens with an image of a woman being sexually pleasured by a giant squid in a dark and bare room. Alejandra Ruth Ramos is seemingly trapped in a static marriage to Angel Jesus Meza, in which they share two lovely children but no happy intimacy. In fact, we are introduced to them as a couple, with Angel seemingly engaging in unwanted sex with Alejandra when they wake up one morning. It is slowly revealed that Angel is having an affair with Alejandra's brother, the Dr. Fabian, Eden Villavicencio, who is timid and charming and also victimised by Angel's homophobic language to him. The enemy here is clear an unloving and cheating husband, but this is complicated by the sinister presence of a stranger, Veronica, played by Simone Buccio, who was the woman we saw in the first scene, who befriends the family. With unknown intentions, the terror seeps outwards from the family, and it seems that they may all be turned into bait for a very hungry squid. Anders, what did you make of this? I really liked this movie, And that's not the feeling I had at the time, but it's really grown on me in quite a major way. It's a weird, it is a slow burn. It's a real slow burn of a film. Like, so we start with this quite in your face scene of uh, this naked woman essentially having sex with this tentacled thing. And then the tentacle stuff disappears for a good proportion of the film's running time. And instead we have this sort of slow burn almost realist drama going on between this family dynamics, this homophobic guy who's also sleeping with a man and full of self-loathing and all this other stuff. These sort of, these complicated personal dynamics. Uh, The film, you know, spends its time looking at them before returning to this alien thing. It's such a great premise. What happens when this creature that can simultaneously sort of fulfil your deepest sexual desires and also kill you. What happens if that just pops up one day in the woods near your town? There's stuff I'm going to talk about it, but I don't particularly want to spoil it. But I'd be keen for your first impressions too, Andy. Yeah, this was really, really bold. I think it was such an interesting move to because we introduced to most characters through sex or their preferences or their desires and this sort of stuff. And so this really cuts away a lot of the character building that people might be used to. So I was a bit confused at the beginning trying, as you were in the introduction there, the relationships are kind of confusing. Yeah, it's time to, and, I, I mean, I thought yeah. they were both the same woman. For, well, yeah. For a while too. yeah. I didn't yeah. quite know if the man who Fabian was sleeping with was a husband. Mm. Um, I thought, oh, that might be the same person or I could just be yeah. you know, um, a little bit blind. But yeah, same. Is, well, I have those, that yeah, struggle yeah. too. And plus the way that we're introduced is we don't get background, we don't get, you know, mm. So just thrown into You're kind of thrown into this, yeah. like, you know, in that really arresting opening scene, and then we get social realism. But it's social realism introduced to us through desire and sex and this need for love and sexual fulfilment, which I thought was really interesting because it exposes a lot of people straight away because they're mostly talking about all they're battling with their particular personal desires. And yeah. So, and particularly yeah. in Mexico, and I think a lot of people, the long, the more you know about Mexican culture, the probably the more you get out of it because it's really shaped by this, you know, Catholicism 
whore or angel sort of way of seeing women. There's this, you know, toxic masculinity gets a really good thorough going over in this film as well. And obviously I think uh, Escalante is more interested in that than anything else. So what I was really interested by was suddenly this introduction of this weird science fiction aspect to it where you do get these really interesting questions being thrown up. And it was I was really surprised because the, most of the talk around this film was about this creature, which you barely see and barely has any role really other than this kind of narrative device to kind of push these characters to these new places. So, yeah, I thought it was really, really interesting. It was a, lot, a little on the slow side, I felt, but also I felt it was well, key parts that were edited away because we there was certain in, like we don't see Veronica with with the creature very much, even though that's meant to be a big turning point for her. Toward the end, I thought the emotion kind of got drawn out of it a little bit. It kind of almost felt a little bit rushed in those closing 10, 15 minutes. It ends very abruptly, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Which so I guess I had expectations of the ending that weren't fulfilled. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. Like I think that that's definitely something that was intended and it didn't always work but, you know, that withdrawal of information and oh, withholding of information, sorry, I mean it's so key to these slow-burning films and to horror films. I mean, we see the monster in part kind of broken up in shots in the same way that there are certain, I mean, really key events that the narrative kind of takes up that we don't see happen and that's because, I mean, I think that's a very clever thing that the the filmmaker is doing. You know, we see people's injuries but we don't see how they occur and so the question is, you know, was it the monster or was it the monster that is the human around them, that kind of thing. And I thought that was all really, really excellent because we doubt ourselves and in the same way people who are in relationships doubt each other because we don't know what they're up to. I'm doing the film a disservice by saying this so explicitly, but I feel like it's so excellent in suggesting that this monster that has a power over you, as you were saying, the ability to satisfy sexual desires and also hurt us, you know, he's like the classic abusive A domestic mm, relationship, mm, mm, mm. those are represented so on par is just really, really excellent and I couldn't um, turn away basically. Mm, yeah. It's a really interesting exploration of addiction I think and I, it reminded me quite a bit of some of Lars von Trier's work, particularly part of Breaking the Waves where there's this need to do something that you know is dangerous but you have to fulfil this addiction and you'll sacrifice a huge amount to do it. And so I thought it was interesting that the cinematographer Manuel Alberto Claro for this film also worked on uh, Nymphomania and uh, Melancholia oh, as well. Right. <laughs> well, that explains a lot actually because it, it does look quite stunning, the film. I thought I thought all the woods and stuff. Um, what, what did you say the original title is? The, uh, the place that's... The Wild Region. The Wild Region. And it yeah. is a wild region. I also want to mention it starts with this shot of an asteroid in space that we never go back to. So I think it's, it's a suggesting that this creature is an alien. You're exactly right, Andy. Is like So he establishes this creature, this tentacle creature thing, equals sex and desire. And then the way that yeah, just these people's daily lives... Uh, in this working class sort of um, the middle of Mexico, how that's all then filtered through that prism is really quite insightful. Yeah, I, yeah, I actually really, really like this film a lot. Yeah, I, what, another thing I really liked was the the eye, the way the camera just looked at sex in this sort of, it, it almost t- took gender out of it because we see the camera lingers over male bodies as much as female bodies, as much as interspecies bodies. Like this, all these sorts oh, yeah, of, of this, yeah. the way of enacting desire I thought was a really nice change just to not see... This heterosexual view, which I'm so yeah, so used yeah, to, totally, of course. Totally. 
I loved this as well, you know, if we think about it in the catalogue of of the horror film, the monster film. Like it's – I mean it's not a monster film, you wouldn't really call it that, but like having this monster removed from society in this isolated place, it's in a cabin. It's kind of being controlled by an, a couple in their 60s, a man and a woman, and you don't know what the man and woman's intentions are, but obviously this squid is providing pleasure to the people who visit it. But there's just something sinister that when we when we hear the dialogue between the man and the woman, we think, uh, are they feeding humans to it so that this thing can, can survive? And I think that that's pretty much what's happening, although we maybe don't figure that out until the end. But, you know, the intention is possibly that this is a, a terrifying figure. But that, that idea of the isolated cabin and the isolated space is just really, um, really excellent, I think. And that mythology of being removed from civilization to a place which can fulfill your desires but also challenge you is great. I wrote this down. He says, what's there in the cabin is our primitive side in its most basic and purest state. So that is what the squid is, also mm. what the squid represents, what it draws out. Putting our primitive side away, boxing it away, removing it from society, that whole like exploration there is just so interesting. Mm, yeah, yeah, especially in a society like Mexico's. Mm. So The Untamed is screening at Acme from October 27th to November 9. This Friday, October 27th, the film is screening with a panel following uh, a discussion between Alexandra Hellenicolis, Spiro Economopoulos and Cesar Alboran Torres. So try and get to that if you can. Cool. So that brings us to the Cultural Capital Film Diary. Open your calendar app, make some excuses and book some of these offerings. The British Film Festival runs in Ballwan, Brighton Bay and Como Palace Cinemas from October 26th until November 15th and you'll be hearing more about that from us next episode when we discuss some of the highlights. The third Tilda, Melbourne Trans and Diverse Film Festival runs from October 26th to 29th at Footscray Community Arts Centre. Tilda showcases documentaries, shorts and features that expand and diversify representations of trans and gender diverse people around the world. The Russian Resurrection Film Festival runs at Acme from November 9th until 19th. Highlights include a screening of the groundbreaking 1924 sci-fi film Alita, the 1971 comedy 12 Chairs, and new releases including Boris Klebnikov's drama Arrhythmia, which has won a host of awards internationally, the satirical road movie Blockbuster, and a pair of dramas about Russian astronauts based on real-life events, Salyut 7 and Spacewalkers. Also at Acme is a special 90th anniversary screening of Wings, the first ever winner of the Academy Award for Best Picture. That runs from October 20th to 24th. Andres Zulawski's quite memorable film Possession is screening on November 4th and again on the 7th if you need to be sure of what you just watched. Over at Astor on the October 27th, there's the International Youth Silent Film Festival, which showcases the work of filmmakers under the age of 20. On the following night, October 28th, there's a 24-hour spooktacular, which includes The Hills Have Eyes, The Monster Squad, Halloweens 2 and 3, and Leprechaun, among others. The Astor is back at it again on the Saturday, November the 4th, this time with Potterfest, which is unsurprisingly all eight Harry Potter films back-to-back for those with the stamina. Eloise, what's happening at Melbourne Cinematheque? Well, I can tell you that in just a second. But firstly, I didn't know that the Russian Resurrection Film Festival was screening Alita, Queen of Mars. So that's really exciting news. Um, If you want to hear Anwen Crawford, our previous guest, and I talking about it, you should listen back to one of our MIF episodes, I think our final MIF wrap. Yeah, check the show Um, notes for the time. Yeah, we talked about that. Um, It's definitely something that is unmissable. Anyway, coming up at the Melbourne Cinematheque is the final two weeks of Focus on Christy Poi, 
uh, Romanian filmmaker, a master of current Romanian realism. And so you should definitely check him out. His big screen works are fascinating. And then following that, although I'll talk about this again in the future, is a three-week season of films made by Raoul Walsh, an amazing Hollywood filmmaker who also made some silent films um, and then went into noir and melodrama. So I'm very excited about that. I'm a Hollywood gal, as you you know. (laughs) That's why you're here. Yes. (laughs) So to continue kind of on theme with some of this film diary, we've got some exciting news. Thanks to Palace, we have two double passes to give away to the British Film Festival. This year's blockbuster lineup will feature a spread of British cinematic delights from sweeping romances and beloved book adaptations to intriguing music documentaries and pulse racing thrillers, all featuring a variety of British cinema royalty, as well as the next wave of British talent lighting up the screen, courtesy of Palace Films. So for the chance to win, email culturalcapitalpodcast at gmail.com by midday Thursday, October 26, with your name and address. Make sure you write British Film Festival in the subject line. Only winners will be notified. Good luck. Yes, best of luck. There's a lot of great stuff happening there. Harold? Mort? Did I tell you I'll be 80 on Saturday? This is definitely a new experience for me. Oh, Harold. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. Can't let the world judge you too much. War is not all black. Why, hell, World War II gave us the ballpoint pen. That's common knowledge. And finally to our top three. So this episode, we're looking at romantic comedies based in California. And so since romantic comedy is such a huge field, it seemed like a good way of narrowing it down. And plus the use of location is often a sign of a really good romantic comedy. Anders, can you kick us off? It is indeed, Andy Hazel. Now, I've chosen three films from a very particular California at a very particular time in the state and indeed the film industry's history. So these are all from the 60s and 70s. But I want to begin with Hal Ashby's Shampoo. So Hal Ashby is a director who is so singularly connected with a very particular space and time. Uh, in this case, California in the 1970s. He filmed the romantic comedy satire, it is satire, Shampoo, in 1975. But the movie, based on a Robert Towne screenplay, um, he who famously wrote Chinatown, is set the day after Richard Nixon was elected president in 1968. Warren Beatty stars as a sort of version of his star persona. That is a hugely successful womanizer. Um, he is a hairdresser who sleeps with many of his clients. Julie Christie and Goldie Horn are a couple of the co-stars. I re-watched it earlier this year and I, it does hold up as like a really perfect satire, I think, of that particular moment in time. It's not cruel to its characters, many of whom act in not always likable ways. I think particularly, more, I mean, Warren Beatty's character. In many ways, it's it's somewhat of an obvious arc that his character goes on, but it's just, it's really funny. It's really well made. It's such an interesting time capsule of that period. And as I said about Home Again, I'm always here for a film where someone, you know, has like this you know, slow-burning realisation that perhaps they could be living their life a slightly different way, which is what happens here. 
also Carrie Fisher's first also film. Also Carrie really? Fisher's first film. Oh, yes, nice. yes, yes. Thanks um, for the factoid. It would have been her 61st birthday this weekend as well. That's so right. So yeah. thank you, Carrie. Um, yes, yeah, thank cool. you, Carrie. So, yeah, great film. Do recommend it. And I will be back with another Hal Ashby later. Really? Wow. Yes. <laughs> Exciting <laughs> news. Eloise, your number three. Well, my number three, um, in fact, my first – uh, several of my top three are also from a similar era. Um, so my number three is John Cassavetes' Minion Moscovitz from 1971. This film is beautiful. It's so beautiful. Basically, I could just end there, but I'll give you a little, <laughs> little bit of a rundown. So it's about Seymour Moscovitz, played by Seymour Cassell, who works in a parking garage somewhere after a um, – Crazy meeting with a wonderful mother, played by Catherine Cassavetes, John's mother. He flies to Los Angeles and there he meets Minnie Moore, played by Gina Rollins, who is Cassavetes' wife. And then he falls in love with her. So Minnie wants her love life to be a fairy tale. And Seymour is also a big romantic and so it's a really beautiful film um, to kind of look at this romantic comedy genre and The the film just kind of engages in it but also critiques it somehow and is just really aware of all of these conventions and how magical they can be. Um, So we're introduced to Minnie in a movie theatre as she and a friend are watching Casablanca. So we see the end of Casablanca, the camera panning backwards from Humphrey Bogart and Claude Rains in that beautiful iconic shot and then the end comes up on the screen. Of course, you know, it's that iconic shot when most of the romance is over and I think that's that's definitely – very important. So after the film, she spouts some romantic comedy lore um, <laughs> that she loves, but at the same time doesn't quite believe in, saying, There's no Charles Boyer in my life, no Clark Gable, no Humphrey Bogart, they just don't exist. When she meets Seymour, although she does feel a spark with him, she says, Your face is not the face I dreamed of, but she still falls for him. I don't know, it's just all so beautiful mm. and real and mm. complicated. Mm. And Gina Rollins is incredible. I don't think that anyone could say anything bad about her acting and what she does on the screen. She's just so powerful and her face is so expressive and obviously Cassavetes is wonderful the way his camera explores people's faces and allows them to express themselves. This film just makes me feel so warm and nurtured as a human being and I love it. Cool, thank you. Well, a lot of the things you just said about that film could also apply for my number three as well. It is beautiful and it is complicated and it is really, really warming. And that is the 2013 film Enough Said by Nicole Holofcener. In this, in Enough Said, Julia Louis-Dreyfus plays Eva, who's a divorced masseur, who's invited to a party in the fairly upmarket LA suburb of, of Pacific Palisades where she's asked out on a date by Albert, who's played by James Gandolfini. And even though she's not especially attracted to him, like it's not the face she necessarily dreamed of, um, she agrees to go on the date and it goes pretty well. But also at the party she met a poet called Marianne, who's played by Catherine Keener, who becomes a client and a friend and who shares feelings about her ex-husband, who turns out to be Albert. So what, what makes this work so well is the easy chemistry of the actors, which is often a stumbling point, I think, for a lot of romantic comedies because we often get people who are cast who are both very attractive and the chemistry doesn't quite necessarily add up. But this is not a problem at all with uh, Louis Dreyfus and Gandolfini. And a big part of that is Holofcene's dialogue and direction, which also made her previous film Please Give work really, really well, I, I think, too. It's just so richly and beautifully observed and the characters are so real. And it's often described by critics and reviewers and stuff like that as being a grown-up movie about, about adults for adults. But ultimately I think this is partly because the vulnerability of growing old and the fear of seeing your children leave home is what's really underpinning a lot of the drama here. 
both characters, Eva and Albert, are going through these sorts of same stresses. And so it's finally, it's worth mentioning that Nicole Holofcin is, hasn't made a film since Enough Said, but next year there's a film called The Land of Steady Habits, which stars Melbourne's own Ben Mendelsohn as a man called Anders. Oh, <laughs> amazing. And Edie Falco as his wife. I love Edie Falco. Cool. Yeah. Nicole Holofcin has directed quite a few um, episodes of television though, yes. in that time. Enlightenment, so, I understand. Mm, yes. Oh, so, t- turns up again in Cultural Capital. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> so she hasn't been um, not working. No, exactly. She yeah. has, yes, anyway. hasn't made a film since then. Cool. Um, and your number two, Anders? Okay, so my number two is Mike Nichols as a graduate, a 1967 rom-com classic that is justifiably famous as a time capsule of the cultural moment that created it. Now, there's this sort of popular narrative about Hollywood that the counterculture took over in, in the, well, around the time of this. The graduate and Easy Rider ushered in this, you know, creative flourishing or whatever, and then that all went out the door when Jaws was wildly successful. I think that's a hugely problematic way of thinking about this time in American history. However, The Graduate is a is an exemplar of the kind of style and ethos that was dominant in Hollywood for, for a decade or so. Crucially also, I think it's not an uncritical attack on sort of mainstream America and, you know, the man, the way that, say, Easy Rider is. So Dustin Hoffman plays this sort of bored young 20-something who's home from college. His parents are sort of well-to-do Los Angelinos. Um, He doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life. And, you know, he sort of lounges around this pool riddled with ennui. In fact, he almost literally falls into his famous affair with Mrs. Robinson, the old woman. There's some stunning filmmaking, I think, here. There's this sort of key montage uh, set to Simon and Garfunkel where Dustin Hoffman's character is, like, in the pool and then he sort of, like, it just sort of collapses all this time. So suddenly he's lounging in the pool, then he's having sex, then he's, um, you know, lounging around uh, a hotel room. Uh, it's sort of all, it's sort of like that idea that of an endless summer that sort of all blurs into one big thing. Um, and also key to the film, I think, are the opening credits, which are this great scene set on a travelator. Yeah, so he's a bit of a drifter character. And when he finally does do something proactive, I think Nichols is smart enough to show that it might just be something that will blow up in his face maybe. And the final shot is really this extreme... I, I think it's one of my favourite shots of American yeah, film, actually. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Where yeah. he and uh, his girlfriend, who was just stolen from another wedding, played Elaine. by Catherine, Catherine Ross? Yes. Yes. Uh, played by Catherine Ross, yes. Uh, they're sitting at the back of a, a bus. They've just, like, run off from her wedding, Elaine's wedding. And the camera just sort of holds on them as that sort of moment of euphoria washes over them and then you're left with, well, what next? So the film sort of ends on this really interesting, complicated point, which I think is a really, I mean, you just don't often see that kind of a film commenting on its screenplay, the way that that moment comments on its screenplay. So, yeah, I think it's really it's really worth watching for the way it talks about that particular time and place. Also, it's 50 years old. Can you believe that? Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> I can't believe that. Five decades old. Amazing. Wow. So that's my number two. Eloise, what's your number two? Well, I just want to say that I feel like I've said this before, but making these top three lists, I always feel like I'm doing a terrible injustice (laughs) to every single film that I don't include and every single film that is not my number one 
Um, mm. I feel very bad for. True. Um, so please don't take this personally, anyone. But <laughs> my number two is, funnily enough, probably one of my absolute favourite movies of all time. It's What's Up, Doc? Peter Bogdanovich, 1972. Oh. Yeah, cool. Um, it is excellent. It's filmed in San Francisco. Some very famous location shooting um, uses San Francisco as the setting, but also very much uses the location for its drama and for its action and speed. Anyway, this is such a wonderful film. It's a revision uh, of the screwball comedies of the 30s and also an homage to them based largely on bringing up baby but also with references to to have and have not because there's this character mm. howard bannister played by ryan o'neill who barbara streisand's character just randomly decides to start calling steve um <laughs> anyway also to casablanca obviously to a lot of those Bugs Bunny cartoons. It's just so much fun. It's basically Peter Bogdanovich having a really, really wonderful time saying these are all of the movies I love. Here is this brand new movie that uses a lot of those conventions but at the same time is just um, enjoying itself. And the actors you can see are having a wonderful time. I will not comment on the rumours that apparently someone was particularly difficult to work with but it looks like they're all having great, a great time. Um, anyway, the, the, basically it's a romantic comedy love story between Barbara Streisand's character Judy Maxwell and Ryan O'Neill's character Howard, who is a oh, musicologist, no, oh. but he's studying the musical properties of igneous rock formations. Um, yeah, so uh, it's set at a music, the American Musicologist Convention in San Francisco, but that's kind of just in the background. Also, one of the main threads is that there are four identical duffel bags that are all present in the same hotel at the same time. Two of them are fairly um, harmless, but one of them contains $20,000 worth of jewellery maybe, I want to say, um, and the other one contains top-secret government papers. Anyway, there's someone who wants to steal one of them and they steal the wrong one and it all, you know, obviously chaos ensues. But that's just all in the background, of this, as similarly to the fact that this musicologist convention is kind of in the background. And basically it's just Barbara Streisand being incredibly annoying and precocious and badgering Ryan O'Neill until he falls in love with her. Anyway, it's wonderful because it just takes so much pleasure in itself. It's just divine. It's so much fun. There's this incredible scene, the top floor of the hotel where they're staying, where Barbara Streisand sings, You Must Remember This. And the camera does this incredible sweeping shot around them, just panning and kind of – so it uses San Francisco as the background uh, for this shot, but also it's just in this hotel and it's about the two of them, but you see the vast stretches of the city. There's this amazing car chase that reportedly Peter Bogdanovich didn't get a license to shoot <laughs> anyway and uh, I don't know this but you can I think it's a Wikipedia page said like you can still 
see some of the steps of the, this staircase. This public um, like cement steps are still damaged from <laughs> yeah, the, right. the car chase that, that used this. <laughs> anyway, it's really, really wonderful. As you know, like San Francisco is this very hilly city. Anyway, I could talk about this movie for a really long time, but I should wrap it up. I did make a joke that I could possibly list three Barbara Streisand rom-coms as my top three, <laughs> but I won't. Just one will do. <laughs> Sounds great. Also, this was Madeline Kahn's first film role and she's amazing. Cool. My number two is L.A. Story, which uh, is a 1991 film written and directed by Steve Martin. This was a film that I have had recommended to me for years and years and years and so I finally caught up with it yesterday and I'm so glad I did because it ticks all the boxes. It's really funny, it's really romantic and it's also just really unlike any sort of film that you would see made these days. It's obviously the vision of one guy, one person who's using a lot of cliches about L.A., um, juice diets and bad traffic and, you know, uh, all these sorts of stuff that people know, even no matter what your level of knowledge about LA is. And it's pulling off these amazing sight gags and running gags with each one of them. So it's kind of breathtaking, actually, in the way, in what he manages to cram in, because it's this really strange mix of high art, Shakespearean quotes, a lot of British influence, I think, as and also there's just lowbrow sight gags, the sort of stuff that would be perfectly fit into like Abbott and Costello or something like that. So basically it begins with this voiceover of Steve Martin telling the viewer that he's had seven heart attacks, all imagined because he was unhappy, but he didn't know it because he was happy all the time. So he plays this celebrity weatherman who does his wacky weather bit at the end of the news who's um, married to this uh, this sort of aspirational, superficial woman called Trudy who he finds out very early on has been having an affair with his agent for the last uh, three years. And around this time, he's also introduced to Sarah McDowell, who plays the trope of a visiting journalist writing a story about the um, city in which she's in, which we saw really well done by Geraldine Chaplin in uh, Nashville. Um, and so anyway, she turns up and she instantly just charms him. She's writing a piece for the London Times, and she's also in town to visit her ex-husband, played by Richard E. Grant, and uh, maybe get things back together with them. So there's this, and at the same time, uh, Martin meets an exuberant sales girl, an aspiring spokesmodel, played by Sarah Jessica Parker, who is just, who is responsible for like most of the kinetic action in this film, really, because she's just constantly moving all the time that she's having any conversation with anybody. Like, and also she's you know, embodying a bunch of Californian airhead cliches but also subverting them at the same time. So it's this really, really strange film because it has it has a bit of narration but then mainly what it's best known for is the way is it has this magical property in which he, talk, he pulls over by the side of a highway and talks to this traffic condition sign and then it sends these cryptic messages back to him. So it becomes this whole magical fantasy thing as well going on and this sign is, you know, all about bringing him together with his true love and helping him, you know, out with his life. But also he has to hug the sign and the sign occasionally makes these weird bagpipe noises and stuff like that and it gives him these riddles that you can't solve. And So anyway, it's this really, really strange film. And also he does a bunch of roller skating through some very expensive art museums just as one of the many, many, many side gags. So it's got a fantastic cast. It, it also it just isn't really like any other romantic comedy I could think of and it perfectly embodies this sense of place as well because LA, you know, it's, it's probably a lot of the stuff, like it has running gags about trying to get a restaurant booking and just how hard that is and how you have to go to this bank and then present them with credit history and all sort of stuff just to get a booking. So it has all these things that would probably make a lot more sense in the early 90s in LA, but also still now I just think work fantastically. So I highly recommend that. LA story. So my number one romantic comedy is also a Hal Ashby film, Harold and Maud from 1971. <laughs> so if you haven't seen it, this is a romantic comedy whose tagline, whose sort of, you know, takeaway elevator pitch is a teenager falling in love with a 80-year-old. It's one of my favourite films from the period, and we'll come back to that in a second, but the indomitable Ruth Gordon plays this um, 80-year-old woman who lives a sort of multitudinous life as a free spirit in the San Francisco Bay Area. 
Uh, Bud Court, who's such a, he's got such an odd, interesting presence and he's been in decades. He's still in films. He's such an interesting guy. He plays Harold, this sort of morbid teenager who lives with his sort of odd and distant rich mother and he's <laughs> become obsessed with faking his own death. So the brilliant opening credits show him sort of fake hanging himself and it goes from there. Harold and Maud, both separate of e- uh, from each other, attend funerals um, for fun, really, for something to do, and they start noticing each other at these various funerals that they go to and strike up a friendship which develops into something more. It's such a gentle film, I really like. I really think. It's got lots of soft focus shots, I think, too. I mean, Ruth, this, Ruth Gordon's character, um, Maud, she's such a... I don't know. She's sort of like, it's become a bit of a cliche, you know, she's sort of like the originator of the manic pixie dream girl. Um, oh my God, don't if say you can that. say that. No, no, but <laughs> that drastically undersells uh, <laughs> what she's doing here. But um, yeah, but you know, she, she, you know, was doing, uh, Hal Ashby was doing all this stuff 40 years before bloody 500 days of summer came around and far more interestingly. So there's a revelation about her character that comes sort of late in the film that adds this, added layer of, of melancholy um, and poignancy to to her character. There's all this really interesting stuff about his, um, Harold's, like, computer dating. So, like, his mum, he's very, he has a bizarre relationship with this woman um, and she keeps on trying to set him up uh, on these computer dates. And, uh, yeah, and so they go through, you know, Q&As and things and then when, when that doesn't work out, she, like, gets uh, his uncle who's, like, in the army to, like, try and, you know, beat some sense into him um, and he stages this, like, hilarious run-in protest with um, Maud playing, like, this protester um, who attacks him and that's, like, hilarious. So there's this, so there's all that 70s social change stuff uh, threaded throughout the film that's set in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is sort of, like, the epicentre of all of this stuff as well. What's interesting is that it's not just a generational thing. It's not like the young guy. I mean, if anything, it's kind of like reversing it. The teenager, Harold, is far from a hippie. So that's interesting where she is, this 80-year-old woman. Um, she's sort of the closest thing to a hippie um, that we see in this film. I don't know. There's no irony in the film's worldview at all. It's very sort of sincere, genuine, gentle. And you can't help, I think, but end up sort of sharing it. It's very beguiling, you know, over, over the course of the film. It gets you onto its wavelength. So I really recommend watching it if you haven't. And it is very, it is very, again, of its time in a major way, I think. Is one of those ways Cat Stevens? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes, yes. The Cat <laughs> Stevens soundtrack is incredible. Yeah, so T for the Tillerman and all this original music in there. Um, and some really beautiful shots, too, of, of the Bay Area. Eloise, number one. Well, my number one, I guess you could say, is maybe slightly related to your number one, Anders, although it is a very different film. So my number one is My Favourite Wife from 1940, directed by mm. Garson Kanan, who was married to Ruth Gordon. Really? What a connection. A <laughs> sort of a screenwriting team. Ruth Gordon wrote a lot of the really amazing screwball comedies in their 30s and 40s. Awesome. So that is my connection to your film, Anders. Cool. But, um, it's I mean, basically if you look at the the um, back crew background of this film, it's it's stunning. So you have Garson Kanan. Edited by Robert Wise, who edited quite a few films and then came went on to become one of the most prolific and diverse filmmakers in Hollywood. Produced by Leah McCary, who 
uh, made uh, the awful truth some of the most incredible screwballs of the time and also the film that Orson Welles said could draw tears from a stone make way for tomorrow oh yeah um, whoa that's a that is a heavy film yeah that is not a romantic comedy <laughs> um anyway <laughs> back to my favorite wife so this is set probably in Los Angeles although it doesn't actually say I think but they go to a, a hotel in Yosemite and then the main the main male character has a business in San Francisco. They say so, and then they go to the mountains. They don't say where, but anyway, I assume that it's set in and around Los Angeles. The premise is that this is one of uh, uh, Stanley Cavell's comedies of remarriage. Um, this is Cary Grant, who it's he's introduced with this with a woman with a fiance played by Gail Patrick, um, the long suffering. Gail Patrick, eternally bemused she is, I think, in all of her films. So they're uh, uh, engaged and the setup is through explanation we realise that um, seven years ago his wife disappeared and she was never her body was never found. She like went missing um, off a boat or a plane crash, I can't quite remember. Um, but um, He's in court to get her declared legally dead so that he can marry this new woman. Um, anyway, so it's very funny. The That's the setup and then the premise is that um, his wife, who disappeared seven years ago, played by Irene Dunn, who is one of my favourite people of all time, is not actually dead and she shows up in Los Angeles and then goes and looks for Cary Grant again because why wouldn't you? Anyway, <laughs> so basically Cary Grant gets his wife declared legally dead, marries this new woman, Gail Patrick, and then Irene Dunn shows up. So Cary Grant is, you know, likely committing bigamy, although there is this funny, very funny explanation that he's not committing bigamy because his wife is still declared legally dead. So that's not a problem. Anyway, it's such great fun. It's a beautiful film. What's great is that there's obviously this like very dramatic conflict in the film, but they're all just really happy all the time. Um, in his typical way, Cary Grant gets a little bit like overly frustrated, but can't actually get angry at anyone or ever. Um, <laughs> and Irene Dunn is just, you know, always in such a good mood. She's like in such good spirits. She's always has this kind of wry sarcasm in her voice and in her face. You can see it. So they just make such a good pair. The other thing about this film is that it turns out that Irene Dunn was on an island with another man who also got kind of lost in this shipwreck, um, played by Randolph Scott. And when Cary Grant finds out that it was Randolph Scott, because Randolph Scott is very attractive, he gets even more angry. And, of course, instead of just fixing this in five seconds, which they all could, they just go around and about not saying anything, not saying what they mean, not telling anyone the truth. It's great fun. The ending is probably the best screwball comedy ending of any screwball comedy I've ever seen. So go forth and watch the film cool. and you will find out why. <laughs> cool, thank you. Well, my number one uh, is from a similar era. And when it comes to comedy and romance, I don't think anybody has yet matched the high watermark of Charlie Chaplin's 1931 film City Lights. Uh, City Lights tells the story of a blind girl who sells flowers on the street and her encounters with Chaplin's The Tramp. And in a very early scene, they meet and she confuses him for a millionaire due to the sound of a limousine arriving and leaving, which coincides with her conversation with The Tramp. 
Um, and the tramp later uh, saves the life of a different drunk millionaire who's contemplating suicide. Now, the millionaire takes him to his house to thank him, and then the next day when he's sober has no recollection of the tramp at all, and this is a running gag throughout the film. Uh, the tramp finds the flower girl and her family are poor and about to be evicted, so he takes a series of jobs to help her keep her house. And it uses LA in a, in a, uh, locations in a really interesting way because we're still in the mid- middle of the Depression, but this is still like the LA of you know flower shops on the streets, of trams, of these beautiful big old houses, of a fairly organised city, which, we, which is weird. And I had to double-check that it really was LA because it just doesn't look anything like the LA that we've seen since. But the romance uh, is what really makes this film, and it's kind of heartbreaking and you were talking about the final scene of The Graduate earlier, Anders, and I think this is one of the only other <laughs> final scenes that could match mm. that for its sheer power. Um, the screenwriter and a critic, James Agee, who you might remember, wrote a, a movie called The Night of the Hunter. Uh, what was that? It was a film called The Night of the Hunter that James... Was oh, it good? Apparently. I've yeah. <laughs> heard good things. Yeah, I've heard Several good things. Times. <laughs> um, he described it as the greatest piece of acting ever committed to celluloid, and I don't think it's very far wrong. So that scene, I think, alone is enough to put it on this list. It's the sort of scene that doesn't really need words, or in this case, intertitles, but it's just so masterfully put together. And I don't think the word you has ever been used by itself in for better, better ends. The whole film is kind of a snapshot of LA in this sort of, like, almost romantically imagined, almost fairy tale version now. And it also is matched with Chaplin's uh, kind of idea of class and dignity and the separation of cultures within this city, which I think he kind of imported. His um, mother passed away just a few months before the making of this film, and I think that a lot of that is kind of influencing his decisions here. There's a whole other movie just in itself about the production of this with actresses coming in and out. But he um, wound up getting uh, Virginia Cheryl, um, who I think got fired at least once during the making of the film because he was just so demanding about what he wanted and how perfect everything had to be. And, you know, inarguably it turned out to be pretty good, I think. It's an amazing film. Mm. Yeah, it's totally, totally And it's still so funny. I was amazed actually watching it again, just going how, just seeing how hilarious <laughs> so many of these scenes are. And then how, like, the pathos as well that's, that are balanced, just balanced, it's just masterful. What a great top nine. Yeah. yeah. This is like my favourite thing, getting yeah. film recommend- recommendations from, from you guys doing this. Yeah, likewise. likewise. Yeah, mm. I'm behind on a lot of your those films you just mentioned. <laughs> um, is there anything that – just because I had so much fun doing this and you, we say that we chose California to narrow it down, but of course I feel oh, like God, yeah. were like a bazillion to choose from. What missed out um, – well, I actually rewatched the opposite of sex, mistakenly oh, yeah. remembering, like, the, the, thinking that it was mostly in LA, but actually it's only about a third of it's in LA. Um, but that was a very interesting film to watch, which I'll talk about in a different time. Mm-hmm. Um, besides that, there were so many screwballs, so many Hollywood films, movies about Hollywood mm-hmm. that I just didn't really know where to begin. So I mainly wanted to look at how they treated the location and the films that best treated the location. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Andy, you mentioned before we started, the kids were all right. That's the kids were all right. I was surprised uh, not to see that on somebody's list. LA rom com. And I want to do a shout. I've already mentioned. I've mentioned this film for, but uh, shout out to another gay movie, which is a oh, yes. gross out gay comedy with a romance at its core, and it's set in some bizarro, um, queered up LA. Yeah, it's great. Eloise. I had a couple, Sullivan's Travels, although oh, I think that man. I would classify that possibly as. Even though it is a screwball romantic comedy, I would classify it as something else rather than a romantic comedy, which is why I chose to not include it on this list, although I absolutely adore it. Yeah, same. The Big Sleep was another one. It's just uh, incredible the way it uses Los Angeles. Yeah, that does. Fun with Dick and Jane, starring George Segal and Jane Fonda, directed by... Ted Wake and Fright Kotcheff. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh. But it's like ridiculous fun. 
It's incredible. It's very, very good. So that was another one that almost made my list. But given that that's about a married couple that just there's no meet cute, there's no seduction, there's no anything, um, I thought maybe it doesn't quite belong. Um, <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, all good films. Um, thank you very much for making it to the end of episode 35 of Cultural Capital. If you want to rate or review us on iTunes, we'd be really grateful. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. And remember, if you want to uh, join in those giveaways, our email address is culturalcapitalpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. And you can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Eloise Lowe Ross. And I'm at Anders Furs. Thank you very much. You're great. Thank you.